Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. If something is so unpopular that you have to force it on people, maybe it's a mistake. Crumbs. Now, I'm thinking poll tax, but you've got a different idea, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of the compact fluorescent light bulb. Here. Oh. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics. Chopper to my pals and listeners, you'll be pleased to hear that finally, finally, we'll soon be free of this endless Tory leadership election. <laughs> So today we're taking a look into what the future may hold for Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to The Telegraph's very own Philip Johnston about whether their Labour opponent, Sir Keir Starmer, is more Neil Kinnock than Tony Blair. But first, it's safe to say that whoever walks through the door of Number 10 Downing Street on September the 6th, they have quite a challenge on their hands. So I'm sure they'll appreciate a rule book, a how-to guide, if you will, on how to run the country. Well, Tory peer Lord Ridley, Matt Ridley, has done just that in an article for The Spectator titled How to Be PM, 10 Rules for the Next Tory Leader to Live By. Well, what are they? Matt Ridley, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Nice to be with you, Christopher. Now, you've written a really interesting piece here for The Spectator a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to go through it with uh, you and the listeners carefully because on Monday we find out finally who the new Tory leader is. Is it Liz <laughs> Truss? Or oh, I know, <laughs> Rishi Sunak. Holly laughter there from Matt Ridley, remotely up in Northumberland. But the article you wrote was How to Be PM, 10 Rules for the Next Tory Leader to Live By. Because what happens is these guys, they come in, don't they, from, from uh, the hustings, they're full of ideas and we'll do this, this and this, and then events take over and the blob submerges them and, and then they get very little done. That's the general problem with being a Prime Minister, isn't it? Yes, and so my, my 10 rules, are, they're probably not very practical ones, but they are uh, sort of ways of identifying what the blob is trying to stop you doing. Yes. Uh, and who is, let, let's start with who is the blob? What is the blob? Is it, just, is it a, a thing created by right-wingers who hate, uh, hate the civil service, or is it an actual thing, and what is the blob? I think the term was, was coined by um, Michael Gove in this context, but it's the, the establishment, the, the, the combination of civil servants and pressure groups and establishment politicians who are 
nudging you towards conventional strategies and policies yes. that often haven't worked very well in the past, rather than radical ideas. And so looking at the candidates now, the blob may be more suitable to Rishi Sunak, whereas Liz Truss defines herself as anti-blob, doesn't she? She's trying to, to, to go a different direction. I think it's certainly true that in the last five or six years, uh, Liz Truss has very much defined herself as a person who does challenge the conventional wisdom, not necessarily from the right, uh, you know, possibly from, from a slightly more radical direction in other times. I think she's arrived in that position after perhaps being in one or two um, secretaries of states and and realizing that actually that that does need to be done you do need to sometimes stand up to uh, the conventional wisdom and come up with radical ideas and push them it isn't straightforward to get the civil service to take on your policies which is surprising so let's look at the first one of your 10 we'll be very quick we'll skim through them for our listeners assume all public bodies have the same goal now that to me is obvious i would have thought that all public bodies have the same goal which is deliver great public services for the minimum actual cost to taxpayers what do you mean well, I, I mean, they have a rather different goal, which is to maximise their own budgets. <laughs> yes, they are ostensibly doing different things. You know, as, as I put it, the Committee for the Promotion of Postage Stamp Collections is looking after postage stamps, and the Committee for Sewage Works is looking after sewage works. But actually, they both want to maximise their budgets. This is very cynical, but it is basically true that if you are running an agency, your first and primary job, and the thing you talk about most, is how do I make sure uh, that I get a decent budget next year? And how do I justify that? How do I, if necessary, build my empire, creep my mission in such a way that I can continue to employ just as many people, perhaps more? And you need to bear that in mind if you're Prime Minister, that that that's what everybody is going to be saying to you. I need a bigger budget. Northcote Parkinson put it beautifully about 50 years ago or 70 years ago when he said that uh, in the end, the the purpose of the Navy is to employ admirals, not to um, defeat enemies. (laughs) Brutally true, I suppose. So be aware of public bodies trying to look after their own best interests. Number two, taking too long to say yes is worse than saying no. And you think that Britain has become a world champion at delay. Yeah, I think we're taking terribly long over decisions these days. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, permission to build a conservatory on on the back of your house or whether to build a third runway at Heathrow, we just take ages to take these decisions. I mean, you know, getting permission to build a few houses on the edge of a village can take longer than the Second World War took. Mm. And and the reason is because every decision now has to be consulted out to lots of different people and passed around government and many different departments of government and lots of special interests to make sure they're all happy. And each one is is told that it must reply within three months or whatever the (laughs) deadline might be and actually it takes that as an instruction to say i won't reply before three months (laughs) (laughs) the maximum becomes the minimum in in many cases when it comes to sort of innovative things often the entrepreneur just needs to have a yes or a no he's quite happy with a no in some cases right you don't want me to do that i'll do something else but to, to keep him dangling waiting for a yes is fatal to the economy and it doesn't work like this in china (laughs) Let's leave China out of it. But yeah, I take the point. I mean, there's two points there, isn't there? Perhaps embrace risk is your advice to the next prime minister. Don't worry about it. You'll be told don't do things. One of Boris Johnson's big thing was he said yes to a lot of things, didn't he? So having that idea of risk is quite attractive, I think, and shows getting things done. That's the point. 
Well, I think generally the reason that civil servants delay things is often because they are risk averse. And the reason they are risk averse is because delay doesn't lead them to be sacked, whereas Mm. a positive decision that turns out to be wrong can lead to them being sacked. And it's rather the opposite in business. If you if you take a gamble on a project in business and it comes off fine, if it doesn't come off, well, you know, it's a problem. Uh, but if you just simply sit on your hands and do nothing, then you are definitely going to be out of a job within six months. That's not the case in the civil service. So you do have to fight against this tendency to say about a decision, let's not take the decision quite let, let's talk to someone else first. And that can end up being penalizing mm. for a lot of you know, people who need to know whether there's going to be a bypass or an investment in a project or whatever it might be. Number three, you said you will never know the good things that your bad policies have prevented from happening. Now, what's what's an example of that? (laughs) Well, uh, I think the trouble here is that if you put forth a policy and and it deters people from doing things, from inventing something, from building a plant, you'll never really know. So you've got to think of the unseen effects of your policies, the things that might not happen. I I gave a very trivial example in in my article, which is that I actually did a project here in my own woods, which I own here, which was I introduced a wood ant into the woods. This is a wonderful ant that builds big wood nests, a very large ant that lives in a lot of woods. doesn't happen to live in my woods. I would like it to live in my woods because it's part of the ecosystem. Uh, and I researched whether or not it's easy to do this. Yes, you take a shovel and a bag and you stick a wood ant nest in, a, in, in the bag and bring it back and dump it in your wood, right? Uh, and I got a wood ant professor to advise me. But the first question I asked her was, do I need permission from Natural England to do this? Because if the answer was yes, I wouldn't do it. I simply wouldn't bother because I knew it would take months to get permission, that I would be hedged around with all sorts of sort of detailed things about how I must, you know, follow it up with surveys and so on. Whereas if I didn't need permission, I could just go ahead and do it when I felt like it. This is a very trivial example. I'm not suggesting that the introduction of wood ants is an important policy of the of the incoming prime minister's government, but I am suggesting that you wouldn't have known that I wasn't going to do it. I wouldn't have told anyone I wasn't going to do it. You know, it would just not happen. Number four, if something is so unpopular that you have to force it on people, maybe it's a mistake. Crumbs. Now, I'm thinking poll tax, but you've got a different idea, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking of the compact fluorescent light bulb. About 10 years ago, we were told... Ordinary incandescent light bulbs could no longer be bought in shops. They were banned. And we must all go out and buy compact fluorescent light bulbs. Now, if you look behind this policy, there's a lot of lobbying going on from light bulb manufacturers saying, you know, come on, force this new technology on consumers. It wasn't a great technology. If you remember right, it gave a rather pale, limpid light. Uh, It turned on rather slowly. It was very expensive. They said, don't worry, it'll last longer. It didn't actually last that much longer. The bulbs didn't. Uh, If you dropped them, you had a mercury chemical spillage in your house, which is quite a (laughs) significant toxic event. Um, So the whole thing was an absolute disaster. Now, it turns out there was a better technology, the LED, coming along which was way more efficient in terms of its electricity usage, gave beautiful light, went on when you turn the switch on, can't break or doesn't break very easily, and lasts forever. Now, Mm. I suspect we delayed the introduction of that 
superior technology because we forced the inferior technology on people at great expense. I mean, it cost something like five billion pounds, the yeah. banning of incandescent light bulbs. We shouldn't have banned incandescent. Let, let okay. people use them until the LED came along. Are they called incandescent light bulbs or, or are you cross with them? Is that their name? No, no they are called... <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't quite clear. <laughs> the, the old technology was called the incandescent light bulb. Um, and so this idea of, of um, first mover advantage in this space, you're thinking of heat pumps electric cars i'm sure there's other spaces well here. i'm thinking that forcing people to give up gas boilers for heat pumps forcing them to give up petrol cars for electric cars may not prove to be the right thing to do uh, for all sorts of reasons you know to do with both the energy and the cost and the environmental impact and so on and and so just be careful of lobbyists telling you that in order to have their product sell in the market, you've got to ban the competition. Yeah. Number five, beware crony capitalists. Now, this is what The Guardian might be warning about, Matt Ridley. Yeah, and, and they wouldn't be wrong. There's a lot of capitalism. Quite a lot of commerce consists of, uh, you know, free market competition between the entrepreneurs trying to solve problems. But quite a lot of it these days consists of people who whose first and only thought in the morning was, how do I get a subsidy? How do I get a policy that benefits me? How do I get a meeting with the minister? And those are crony capitalists. They're capitalists who, who are basically dependent on some kind of favoritism from government. Now, there's an awful lot of them about now. You know, a lot of it happened during the pandemic. A lot of it is happening as a result of net zero. So just be aware of the fact that the private sector is now behaving rather like those self-interested public bodies that I talked about in the first example. Yeah, they get they want they want to get away from the kind of the, the teat of public money and start earning it elsewhere. Maybe number six, there are no experts on the future. I find this fascinating. I remember hearing a discussion about why Whitehall fails to forecast the future so often. Oliver Letwin was there because um, one of his jobs when he ran the cabinet office was to look into the future risks, but they can never get it right, can they? Well, not just them. It's This is not picking on government forecasters. I'm saying, and this is quite a radical thing for me to say, that nobody is any good at forecasting the future. Um, <laughs> now, it's true that you can tell that the sun is going to come up in the east tomorrow. You can tell that the winter is going to be colder than the summer. You know, th these are reasonable things. But in terms of how the economy is going to perform, how an epidemic is going to develop, how the uh, climate's going to change. These are multifactorial, multi-causal, dynamic systems in which causes become effects and effects become causes. Uh, and they are highly chaotic in the strictly mathematical sense of that word. And as a result, there just isn't any expertise on how they will perform. Yes, you can say that the economy will grow on average, but you can't say whether one country will perform uh, better than another country over the long term and things like that. So remember, nobody forecast the great financial crash coming. The problem is there's a whole profession grown up called modelling, which claims that they can give you an indicative answer. Now, as we saw in the pandemic again and again, they will come up with very specific futures and say, this is what's going to happen. And then when you say, well, hang on, it didn't happen like that, they will say, ah, yes, but we had confidence intervals around our prediction. We said it could be 500,000 dead, or it could be as low as 100,000 dead, or it could be as high as 2 million dead. So we were right, actually, because it was only 100,000 dead. And you say, well, hang on, that's not a very useful forecast. There are lots of experts on the present 
and the past, mm. but there genuinely isn't a science of expertise on the future, in my view. And no. the people who claim with models that there is are selling snake oil. Point seven, Matt Ridley. Innovation is not predictable. Yeah, this is part of the same point. I'm fascinated by the failure of people to get the future right. Uh, when you look at the, the technologies that have transformed our lives, things like the mobile phone, the internet, the search engine, you know, the social media, nobody saw them coming. I'm, I'm particularly interested by the search engine because, you know, around 1990, my life changed. And suddenly you had this thing called Google, which meant you could go online and find things out in a way that I can't remember how we did before, but we did. Yet, if you read in the 1980s, people talking about this internet thing that's developing, None of them say, hang on, search is going to be really helpful. And the people who invent the best search engines are going to make the most money and so on. Google, of course, you know, scooped the pool, but there were lots of other types of search engine around. So actually saying which technology is going to amaze us next year or next decade is very difficult. I tried it once or twice. And having written books about innovation, people are constantly asking me, saying, right, okay, what's next? Uh, and I try and duck the question. I say, look, no point in asking me. I don't know. Um, here's a guess, but it's probably wrong. Yeah, you've got some, some, some quotes here from the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman in 98, saying that by 2005, that's seven years hence when he was speaking, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy will have no, been no greater than the fax machine. Obviously wrong. Um, <laughs> not easy. Let's not go into my previous articles about forecasting the future. Number eight, it's a bottom-up world. Now, I totally agree with this. This is a, Will you explain what you mean? I'll, I'll give you my view on that one. Well, I think we tend to make the mistake that we think that the world is like a chess game where you're moving the pieces, whether you're the civil servants or the businessmen or, or whatever, that you're in charge somehow of what happens. And it just isn't the case. The, the world is full of things like the English language, which emerged from below, from ordinary people. There's nobody in charge of the English language. There isn't a committee to uh, to decide what word we use for Brexit, for example, or uh, or, or for COVID. We kind of invent these words among ourselves. So we need to understand that a lot of the world emerges from the interactions of ordinary people is not ordained by wise people from above. And I think that's a really important lesson that prime ministers need to bear in mind. Yeah. Now, I interpreted the idea of a bottom-up world as the way I think about um, a lot of my political reporting is trying to look at how people experience public services and policies and work back up the pipe to Whitehall. So I often might say to a minister, have you applied for a passport recently? Have you gone through that process? Because you need to, because you're bloody well in charge. And often they don't. They rely on what they're told by the civil service. It's all fine. The waiting times are this. I mean, have you called up HMRC with a worry, with a worrying letter and waited half an hour? I mean, until you do that and my advice might be if, if they want to take it from me would be to have a team of people just trying out public service delivery and see what it's like i think that's a superb example of exactly what i'm saying and i think that's a really good mm. idea number nine nobody knows how to make a pencil well i'm deliberately borrowing you're getting desperate now you're number nine and ten are these are uh, still going to keep going I'm nearly there no no yeah i'm deliberately borrowing here from from a guy called leonard reed who wrote an essay in 1958 which is called i pencil and it's a pencil trying to find out how it came into the world and concluding that although millions of people contributed to the manufacture of a single pencil chopping down trees mining graphite you know etc etc None of them actually knew how to make a pencil because the knowledge isn't inside a single human head. And that's true of almost any object we think of. I mean, some, somebody the other day tried to make a toaster from scratch 
Um, you know, they mined the iron <laughs> ore, they smelted it, they etc. etc. It took them about a year, uh, a huge grant from an arts council, etc., and, and they came up with a very bad toaster. And that reminds us that actually the world is full of things that we collaborate to create. And actually, you know, just keeping open in your mind the importance of collaboration is really important and something that I think, again, civil servants sometimes miss. Number 10, finally, the pessimists are usually wrong. Well, that's good. That's a good way to end. Matt Ridley, do explain. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, globally, this is true. I'm not saying that everything's going to be fine this winter with the energy price rises or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm saying that globally, the global pessimists who say the world is doomed were saying that to me when I was young in the 1970s and I believed them and I was wrong to believe them. I mean, I was told that, you know, uh, the population explosion was unstoppable, famine was inevitable, uh, the oil was going to run out, uh, cancer was going to become so prevalent that life ex- expectancy would shrink, not increase, etc., etc. I believed all that stuff. And we're telling young people today that because of climate change or whatever, um, they've got no future, they shouldn't have children, it's grim, that a billion people are going to die of starvation. You know, you hear this stuff again and again and again. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but it's almost certainly wrong because it's been wrong for 200 years. People love shouting the apocalypse at you. And actually, you've got to remember that actually year after year, decade after decade, the living standards of the poorest people in the world have improved dramatically in my lifetime. Although the gap between rich and poor is getting worse, don't forget. Not in the world, it isn't. Not in the world, just in some countries. No, in some countries. Globally, it's been shrinking, the gap between poor and rich, because the poorest have been getting rich faster than the richest. You end your really good piece, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes of this episode, with a quote from the legendary H.L. Mencken. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Now, let's not discuss Brexit, Matt Ridley, but your your point is, let's not panic. (laughs) Yeah, I I think Mencken, that's just a fantastic quote, because he really gets the point that, that, that politicians love scaring us. Because then we can say, oh, can you save us from this scare? Yeah. Uh, and we saw that with Brexit. We saw it with the Project Fear that went, went with Brexit. We saw it with, with the pandemic. Now, you know, there was a lot to be frightened of in the pandemic. But you could really, you could almost feel the way the politicians were reveling in the fact that because they had a reason to scare us, we would be clamorous to be led to safety mm. by them. Lord Ridley, Matt Ridley, thanks for joining us this week on Chopper Politics. A link to your article in The Spectator, How to Be PM, 10 Rules for the Next Tory Leader to Live By, will be in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, do stay with us, listeners. We spent weeks and weeks discussing the Tory party, but what about Labour? Is Sakir Starmer going to be like Neil Kinnock in 1992 and lose the next election to the Tories? Or like Tony Blair in '97? and herald a Labour landslide. We'll discuss that right after this. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal, We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. 
all from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. Now, much has been made of the parallels between the coup against Boris Johnson by his own MPs and the defenestration of Margaret Thatcher. Both of them were charismatic, they governed in times of crisis, and they oversaw a period of the Tories in power for some years. But what about Labour? What can we learn from history about their chances at the next election? Philip Johnson, who covered those leaders in their prime for The Telegraph and now our chief leader writer, has written a fascinating piece in the paper headlined Labour heading for certain victory. This feels more like 1992 than 1997. So I asked Phil to join me in Telegraph Towers to find out what he meant. Good to see you, Christopher. We've been here before. Um, and being a grizzled old veteran of the Daily Telegraph, of course, I reported on this when I was doing your job many years ago, actually, chief political correspondent on the Telegraph in 1992. So this was an election that the Conservatives were bound to lose. Um, they'd been in office since 1979, and there's a sort of longevity, really, attached to governments of about 13 years. And Neil Kinnock, who'd been leader of the Labour Party since 1983, and had expunged all the left-wingers with a great series of show trials of militant tendency and uh, left-wing bosses of local authorities, had established himself as a prime minister in waiting. And more than that, there was a recession, a deep recession. How many quarters by that point? Within the well, by 1992, it was about six quarters. So if a definition of a recession are two successive quarters of negative growth. So we were really in a deep recession. Which is where we could be, by the way, in May 24. We, we could, could well be. We could well be through six quarters of Well, I would say we're already in a recession anyway, because the, last, the quarter to June, July was negative, And whoever takes over on Monday will be uh, probably in a recession already, however much they wish to avoid one. So the received wisdom is that any government in the middle of a recession, having been in office for 13 years, must lose. It was a great mystery to everyone. Labour Party seemed to be ahead in the polls going into the election, and Kinnock had established himself as a Prime Minister in waiting, as I said. The Conservatives had a new leader, of course, and John Major, though relatively new. He'd been in office for about two years, having um, got uh, the Tories got rid of Margaret Thatcher. The so same as Liz Truss already Exactly. The, the parallels are uncanny. And the assumption today, which is what I was writing about, is that whoever takes over is essentially a poison chalice and will must lose the next election. Well, that is not the case. Why did the Conservatives win in 92 is the really big question. Sophologists have tried to answer it for years, not to any great um, accuracy. And I remember queuing to vote for the first time and probably the only time in my life because there was a massive turnout of middle England, mm. middle record class. Record Tory turnout. A, a record think. vote. Record vote. I mean, there was a, the number of votes that John Major got in 92 was the highest in history. More than 14 million, 43% of the popular vote. 
but in just in numbers terms, higher even than Tony Blair got in 1997. So the explanation for this seems to me, and it's, I suppose, anecdotal rather than scientific, that in a recession, voters worry about the Labour Party because the Labour Party, until Blair came along, was really the party that messed up the economy. And so it's still a mantra that the Conservatives utter today, that no Labour government has ever left behind an economy better than the one they inherited. And, of course, the great irony of 92 mm. was that a few months later there was the ERM disaster. Yeah. And it was a disaster for the government because what had happened was that the, the, the voters had entrusted the Conservatives with getting it right and then it all went horribly wrong with the um, ERM. And that was the moment when they, gave, they were given a chance in 92 and they lost that. They lost I that. think they lost it and quite quickly. If you look at Thatcher's majority, 102 in 1987 against Johnson's uh, majority, 90 or so from 2019, there are all sorts of reasons. I mean, history can guide you. Isn't always the answer in history, is there? But it can guide you to what might happen. It can guide you to what is not necessarily certain. And... There are people who are just assuming that things are going to happen. So a new leader who might be able to get us out of a recession quickly, unlikely because I suspect Europe is going into one as well, though the Americans appear to be coming out, within, if they go for the full two years. I mean, there's another question, of course, is whether with a Truss or Sunak, whoever wins, should go for an early election. Well, I've heard from a cabinet minister very recently, they think there's going to be such chaos caused by strikes and inflation and cost of living and everything else that, that the country might become ungovernable. So it won't be a choice as much as impose on, on, on the, the next prime minister. But that's a different question. It is, well, it's a related one because the calculation would be, can I do in two years' time show the uh, Conservative competence and win it then? Or do I do what Brown should have done? And I do recall, without blowing my own trumpet, but at the time being the only one who said he won't have an election and everybody thought he and would. And he bottled it. He bottled it because prime ministers always fear they're going to lose. And he'd just taken over after hankering after the job for 10 years. Um, and at least he had three years as prime minister. And his ideas were never tested in any kind of hustings, of course. It was a coronation, not an election. Precise. The advantage here is we, have, we know an idea that there was a different idea from Truss or from, or from Sunak, who's more status quo. You haven't mentioned the Kinnock factor, so let's rub the Starmer factor. Starmer's also, but isn't as far as, as he should be, is he? Oh, goodness me. I mean, I mean 4% well, ahead. Well, forget 92, so then we come to the lead up to 97, which would be the equivalent in some in some ways, because Starmer has um, got rid of, had to get rid of the left wing as well, or get rid of the left wing baggage left by Corbyn. So let's take two and a half years out from the 97 election. Tony Blair was... 30 points ahead in the poll sometimes. I mean, I remember one poll where he was 40 points ahead. The um, Labour Party's people like Alastair Campbell were trying to almost suppress these results because they thought the complacency would seep into the party. And indeed, they were heading for a, a landslide win, as we discovered. I mean, Starmer is seven or eight points ahead, which is nothing at this stage of a government, given the 
mayhem there has been in government over the last... Because uh, that would yield a coalition, let's say, of chaos, which is used in previous elections, where you might have a, a minority Labour government supported by the SNP and well, the Lib Dems. I don't think 7% would even yield a, a minority Labour. Labour would not necessarily be the biggest party in those circumstances, because the difference between now and then is they have no seats in Scotland. So they have to win a majority in England. To do that, they'll need a 13% swing, which is greater than Blair got. Is Starmer really the man who's going to do this? I can't see it somehow. So the likelihood is, the most likely outcome, if the Tories do lose power, is that they would might still end up as the biggest party. And then, of course, it all depends on how well the Lib Dems do and whether they can do another coalition. And if they want to, because I, if they, want they, to, may, they may not want to after what they lost experience doing that. I think that uh, the Conservative Party is a vehicle for staying in power. Mm. They will always want to do a deal that will enable them to remain in office. But would the Lib Dems do it or do a confidence and supply? That's a different question. I think they've learned from the DUP slightly on that one. Exactly. Confidence and supply more than a coalition. So what should Labour do then, do you think, to capitalise on this Tory disarray? You know, we've had a summer of Tory blue-on-blue attacks. You know, we are, as you think, we're going through a recession. That recession will be be confirmed in October time. We've got, you know, a possible uh, winter of discontent. What more well, can they be doing? I mean, there's so much happening that, that they should be supporting and helping Labour in the polls, and it's not. Well, of course, a winter of discontent can damage Labour in the polls. A winter yeah. of discontent did for Jim Callaghan in 1979, because people then blame the unions and mm. say that they're far too close, or the Labour Party's far too close. Starmer is trying to move away from this. I mean, he's clearly... Uh, he sought to discipline one or two that didn't work well for him of his front benches who appeared on picket lines. He made a big speech about taking a different approach. He's dumped all the manifesto promises from 2019, dumped all his own promises from when he became leader. So in some ways, he's he's trying to do a bit of a Blair in the sense of leaving behind the left-wing legacy, but he's not doing anything like as much. There's no, it's not the same activity. Labour then, they were producing documents and strategies. They were dominating the discussion. What this leadership... Were they pre-92 or, or post-92? Pre-97. Yeah, because they almost didn't talk about Tories. The Tories imploded in, in a sleaze thing and, they, and Labour didn't Labor talk about over them. Labour took over the political debate. Of course, the irony of this leadership election for the Conservatives is that they're dominating the discussion. They, all the bandwidth is being taken up by a, a Tory Tory discussion. Labour are sort of out of it. Apart from their one idea they had this month on the issue of, um, of the cost of living and energy bills, which is going to cost us 40 billion quid over six months. Well, if you take, let's see, that's a good example. So here's, here, and this may well happen, certainly in the first budget, the emergency budget that Trust is proposing. And it, one way of doing this is to freeze energy bills at their current level, but set up a sort of credit line through the commercial banks, which the energy companies will then draw on. It'll be underwritten by the government, but it won't require taxpayers' money, and it will be paid back over a sort of 15-year period by customers through higher bills, but it would stop this massive and huge increase. This was put to Sunak in April, and he rejected it. It's back on the agenda, as far as I understand. Now, that is what Starmer should have gone for. If he'd gone for that, he would have looked like a different sort of Labour leader. He would have had the same policy priority of freezing the energy bills. But what he reached for, of course, was a tax. And it just reverted to type. 
if he really wants to show he's different like Blair did, and Blair was a very brave leader of the uh, Labour Party in dumping an awful lot of old party shibboleths and going off in a, in a different direction. And he, of course, did win a majority in England. And he was the last, in fact, only Harold Wilson in 1966 has also won a majority. So it's not over for the Tories yet, is it? By no means. Philip Johnson, the Telegraph Chief Lead Writer, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Philip Johnston there. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. Next time you hear from me, we'll have a new Prime Minister and we'll bring you a special edition of Chopper's Politics on Monday afternoon to discuss their prospects. But before then, I'd love to know your thoughts about what our guests have to say today on the podcast. You can email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter, we're at chopperspodcast. As well as this weekly podcast... I write a daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. This brings you the best Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. Please do sign up for that at telegraph.co.uk forward slash politics newsletter. And do please be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary gossip column out at 7pm on Fridays on our website and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. Thank you again to my guests this week, Matt Ridley and The Telegraph's very own Philip Johnston. Thank you, as ever, to the brilliant team of producers behind this podcast, Giles Gear and Louisa Wells. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. Remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, when a new Troy leader will have been crowned, cheerio!